This is the Andres Segovia Show. Okay, greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Andres Segovia Show. I'm your host, Andres Segovia. Today, joining me are the authors of the new book, Benghazi, Know Thy Enemy, A Cold Case Investigation. Sarah Adams and Dave Benton are the authors, and it's a printout of the book because it's uh, it just launched. But, folks, thank you so much for coming on the program. Good to have you on. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. For my audience who may or may not know who you are, can you please let uh, let them know who you are and what your profession is? Sure. Um, Dave Boone Benton. Got about 26 years of experience in the arena. Um, started with the military. Then I ended up being a law enforcement SWAT officer. Then I ended up going to the State Department's Diplomatic Security Service, and then I ended up doing 12 years with uh, the CIA. Hi, I'm Sarah Adams. Um, after college, I joined the CIA. I was a human targeter. Um, then I was there for about a decade. I was recruited out of the CIA, and I joined the Select Committee on Benghazi. So that was the one run by um, Congressman Trey Gowdy. Um, and then now I work for the Department of Defense, and I work on like research and development efforts, so kind of in the IT space. Human targeter, for those who may not be familiar with that, because uh, the first thing that jumps out at me is the character of Carrie Matheson from Homeland, if you're familiar with yes. that. Is, is that along the lines of what you're talking about? Yeah, so Carrie Matheson was a case officer, but it is pretty much my favorite TV show. So I love um, Homeland and Alex Yanza. Yay. Um, but yeah, so actually the best description of it, if you're going to watch like a show, is um, Zero Dark Thirty. So Maya in Zero Dark Thirty was a targeter. So that's what targeters mostly get known for, capturing and detaining terrorists or putting them on the X. But targeters also go and find the individuals the U.S. government needs to recruit to collect information from. So that could be scientists, diplomats. I mean, it could be in any um, field. It's just where the U.S. has gaps in intelligence. Understood. Okay. Uh, and I don't want to be remiss if I, if, if I don't mention this note. You mentioned something on the American Outdoors News podcast that you took issue with. Uh, you said the new gen CIA is better than you are. Uh, and I dare say, I I don't think you could replace on the ground experience. because I think that's what you probably have a leg up on them. So I think you're being a little too modest. You know, the, the, the thing I love about this new generation is they really know how to use open source and technology. Mm-hmm. And we could hardly even get technology in the building. And they're just doing just amazing things with it. So I'm really excited for the future. Oh, all right. Well, uh, still, I, I would say that your knowledge is valuable. So I'm sure some of them will still look to you. To I, I agree with you, Andre. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, we work together on this. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and Boone, um, you you didn't mention it, but uh, it's kind of like the, the overtone on all this. You're one of the original six uh, GRS guys at the annex that uh, this whole political football uh, kind of it's blown over. Uh, you're one of the six guys that were on the ground there, basically Alamo 2012. That is correct. Yes. Yeah, dude. Seriously, hats off to you. Um, the I, I think if I'm not mistaken, of the the movie portrayed you as a, a sharpshooter or a sniper. It portrayed me as many things to include being six foot four and Caucasian, but yes. But he's actually an excellent sniper. So that is a fact. He was a Marine sniper. A Marine sniper. Yeah. Uh, and I do have to ask this because it's kind of movie related. The the actor who plays you, that was Dave, David Denham. Uh, did, did he, was he able to, uh, did he have access to you to portray you as best possible on the screen? No, um, I continued to work for the agency until 2016, so I had nothing to do with the the, um, the movie, or you know, I, I would have used Jason Momoa. Um, but but David <laughs> David did a good job of um, capturing the mannerisms, if you will, and I believe he got a lot of that from the guys because I believe um, Tonto Tig and Oz were actually. Yes. Um, technical advisors for the movie. So they, they did a good job with that. But there is one one funny thing. We were invited down to Miami and Michael Bay invited us down to watch the movie. And so so David was there and we met him and he came up to Boone and he said, they told me that you were a heavy set and they made me gain 30 pounds. <laughs> you smaller than me. So he was all frustrated. He had to gain weight for the movie. It made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, they were just all hazing him then. <laughs> yes, that probably was a Tonto thing because Tonto's so thin that he doesn't know the size of other people. <laughs> I, I believe that. I believe that. Uh, and, uh, and speaking to that, like the whole uh, a Tonto and Boone thing was, uh, they they showed you the camaraderie between your two, both of you was more so than um, than the others. Kind of like their their groups. Um, 
but you were portrayed more as a as a thinker, kind of like a philosopher, the reader, not the one wasting his time on video games. How accurate was that? Well, that that was maybe fifty percent accurate. Well, he, um, he spends ninety percent of his time on video games still to this day. We we all played video games. It's just a, a way to kind of unwind, if you would. Um, I, I do like to read, but yeah, some of the scenes where the guys are working out and I'm sitting there reading a book, that's not accurate. No. Yeah, he would have been napping when the guys were working out, not reading a book. Okay, all right. That, that makes, I had to get that out of the way because uh, um, I, there's a lot of curious things about this. But uh, no, <laughs> still, all in all, I, I must say because just to get the movie stuff out of the way, that might pop up a little bit um, as we converse. But um, I was actually stunned at because um, the way Michael Bay works, he, he just he's in, he's fast. I think the first scene that he shot with um, the actors who play um, uh, Tonto and and boom um, and some of uh, what Feb Seventeen guys that they run across the street was basically to try to they're going to the to the consulate and they're just trying to get a vantage point that was a bust. So that was supposedly the first scene that was shot. It's like okay, just run into this building, knock things down like you would if you're entering, you're clearing the room. So uh, we're just going to have a camera there and kind of film it guerrilla style. So that, as I understand, was the first scene that they shot together. And it's like so Michael Bay works furiously. That's what he's most known for. He's like, oh, he's patriotic, flag waving, and all that. When I saw the movie, I thought it was something very special. I'm like, hold on, this is not a Michael Bay film. So I talked to um, some of my my vet buddies, some of them that are cinema files. I told them, hey, can can you watch that? Let me know. I was like, oh, it's Michael Bay. Then they finally got around to watching. And I told him, it's like, I hats off to him. It's like what. The, the the tactics the the mannerisms the the body movement everything um he was paying very close attention to that to to make it as real as possible and i think that's why the movie has a surreal feel to it a, a, a realistic feel to it unlike other war movies that haven't been done before it so uh, i thought that was interesting i don't know if that's what you got uh, out of the film when you saw it so actually i thought he did a very good job of capturing you know the, the realities of of the events um over those two days um so my hat's off to him for that uh, my only real complaint was that and I, I guess i understand why you can only do so much you know in an hour hour 45 minutes there was a lot of things that were cut out completely and not mentioned at all um but overall no, I, I thought that they did very well and i'd say it's probably like 80 percent accurate so they did well yeah i would uh, when i showed uh images uh, my, my wife this this is a shock to many that that know me. Uh, my wife's the one that asks me, "Hey, what other war movie can we watch?" I'm like what? So <laughs> she's she's the one asking. I'm like, "Honey, we've seen them all, so all we can, all we can do is just watch them again." Uh, just last night, she told me, "Hey, are we going to watch Thirteen Hours again?" Believe me, we have no idea how many times we've seen it. It's it's tough. It, it's tough to watch. Uh, it's also inspiring. It's the only film that makes us feel uh, angry, leaves us in tears, and makes us want to watch it all over again. And uh, until recently, I'm like, you know what? This has become uh, probably my favorite uh, movie in that category, uh, mostly because of it's it's a larger than life event that's still affecting us. And I think that's where uh, I say it's still a political football uh, because that's kind of why you're bringing out the book. Um, this thing is technically not nothing has been done, so to speak, Correct. in 10 years. And, and we'll get into it. Uh, but uh, just to wrap up the, the whole thing about the movie, I think that's what made um, uh, that's something very special. And that's why I kind of threw it out to the ass because I, I overheard in some of the making of it that um, there were at least three or four guys that were uh, interviewed as technical advisors. I know the three of them were uh, declassified. In other words, they, they exposed themselves. And that was Oz, Tig, and, and Tonto because I remember when they first came on with uh, Megan Kelly, when I sat down with Brett Baird, they did the 45 minute interview to just talk the whole thing out because that wasn't really no, no one's heard that story before from the guys that were on the ground. Everything was about the controversy regarding the stand down order. Was there, wasn't there, whatever. Uh, and then the ultimate report that say, no, it never happened. So then the eventually the book comes out a couple of years after that. There's, there's so much there and still is, but as uh, the the byline on your book is a cold case investigation, it sure feels like it at this point. Mm, oh, so, it is. That, that's why I, I thought I, I I'd connect that because the movie itself there was there was a lot of politics leading up to the movie's release. Because uh, uh, some would say I was a movie critic, so and politics. So uh, it's to say there's a lot of the Clinton hands inside, or at least a lot of friends in Hollywood to them. For example, there's a movie, was a TV made for TV movie called the path to nine 11. 
there was a scene that was cut out and that was with respects to the um the team that had eyes on Osama bin Laden in 1997 98 this was before the embassy bombings that clip was in it and they were trying to make the call to the president for authorization they couldn't they got Sandy Berger instead uh they said okay at least wake up the vice president so we could talk to them and they didn't get anything so they couldn't get Osama bin Laden you can't find that movie it was never released after its original broadcast which was over two nights on ABC it's gone no one could see it I downloaded it. There's ways to get it. But the point is, there were politics at play. So when this movie was going to come out, when you said they cut a lot of stuff they left out, that's why. They like they try to make it as non-political as possible. But even so, the the I guess the mainstream media of the Hollywood press was panning the movie before it even came out. So when the movie came out, it's technically a box office failure. And it wasn't until after the fact when individuals like us, because it affected me too, like, I didn't want to watch it because Michael Bay. They got to me. It wasn't right. until like a year or so later that I finally watched it. I'm like, how did I miss this? Then, I, oh, yeah, I know why I missed it. Because they tried to destroy the film because mm-hmm. it was coming out during a, a political campaign. And they thought, oh, this is just to hurt Hillary Clinton's campaign. And I thought that was awful because there's nothing. The only mention in the film is just like a rooftop scene. It's like, hey, they're talking about some video on YouTube. I didn't hear anything about it. That's it. That's all that was mentioned. There's no politics in the film. And I think it's, it's a shame. And that's why I think what, what you're doing is still super important, which is why I reached out. I was like, hey, I've seen uh, some interviews, but I still think that there's still more to talk about this. But she was like, I got to reach out, say, you guys come on or not. And here you are. Thank you so much. Um, having said that, with respect to your book, even the release of your book, uh, uh, there's there seems to be some drama behind that. Uh, the, the DOD kind of held your book back, right? Yeah, well, it wasn't exactly, the DOD ended up doing it kind of quick. It's just the fact they told us we were going to get in in August. And then we got all these excuses, like the woman working at quit, the next person got COVID for four weeks, and they had to train someone up. So it it got a little frustrating, because obviously it pushed all of our deadlines. We wanted to put it out for the 10-year anniversary. Luckily, we got it back in the DOD, very minimal um, redactions. So we really had no issues with the content with them. But so it was the timing thing that was difficult for us but we're just happy it's out and we can share it now it was also last minute too um because we knew everything we do even now has to go through the agency review board and we have no problem with that but then last minute after the agency said hey these are our redactions we're good all of a sudden dod jumped in and said hey no we want to look at it too so it's um, a little strange yeah it, it almost seems like hey are you gonna make us look bad uh kind of thing right <laughs> Uh, Boone, I don't know. You, you might have seen it. I, I, I did see uh, the Instagram account. Noticed a, a a post that I put on my stories. All the books that I've read in the past uh, five six weeks. One yeah. of them was Alone at Dawn, and that's the one I said I wanted to get out of the way first. Move on to the other ones. What was happening with your book kind of reminded me of what's holding back the Medal of Honor for John Chapman because mm-hmm. it was going to make the seals look bad. So I'm like, I wonder if DOD did the same things. Like, don't make us look bad. <laughs> so right. I'm glad they didn't really remove much of anything. Um, for the book, so that's good. But still, yeah, and I work for the DOD, and they just are slow at everything. Honestly, <laughs> my standards are like down here for the DOD. So for me, oh, I yeah. think it was fast for the DOD. Um, so it makes <laughs> me laugh. But yes, well, they government bureaucracy, right? System, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, and with the, I actually pre-ordered the book uh, of, about last week when I I saw the post go like, oh snap, it's up. So I I pre-ordered it on Amazon, and the book launched. The day before the, we're recording this, um, and I still don't have word from Amazon that they're going to ship it. But now there's uh, price gouging happening there. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. that I noticed. Um, so it's like, okay, that I thought that was strange because I noticed it too. It's like, uh, this is a little off. But this as a third party retailer, but uh, it doesn't take much of a sleuth to realize that that's Amazon's branch out there in the UK that's doing the selling. But uh, but at least there's Barnes and Noble. So before we came on the call. Because I didn't get anywhere when I'm going to receive the book, and I look, I went back to look. It's not really showing you can buy it on hardcover right now. So it's right. like, okay, I don't know what's happening with Amazon. So I ordered it also from Barnes and Noble right before we did the call because I'm like, well, we'll see which one gets here first. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I understand that uh, uh, this is self-published. Correct. Yeah, we uh, was- we had a conversation with a couple 
publishers. It was more the fact, hey, you guys are doing a book on Benghazi. Here's who would put the book out, right? People were already making assumptions about it. Um, and then we got some really weird responses. One was like, you only have an alt-right audience. And we're like, no, like people care about going after terrorists on both sides. Like, don't tell me that's political. Um, and so we really got to the point where we're like, we don't want someone else to influence this. We just want to put out what we found and we want to make the choice. And so that's why we chose to self-publish. Okay. All right. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, there is something I, I wanted to show you before uh, moving on so we can talk about the book. But I guess the, the question I have about the book, is it another Benghazi book, a retelling on what's happened, or are we going to learn a lot more things that we didn't know before? So, no, it's not. And that's a good question. Um, this is not another Benghazi book. And and if you look, there are a lot of books on Benghazi. Um, in my opinion, there's only two up until now that were really good. And that was 13 hours and under fire. And the reason being 13 hours was a perspective of a, a narrow perspective of just the guys on the ground and what they were going through with limited information without the totality of circumstances. And then thir- our, um, under fire was the exact same way, but it was from the DSS perspective and what they went through. Um, so both those books are written by people who are on the ground. They're very accurate, but they're narrow in focus. Our book, um, it focuses just on the attackers, who they were, why they actually did it, their backgrounds, where they come from, um, where are they now. So it really is a totally different book. It has no politics in it, although it will upset a lot of people in politics and it'll make a lot of people look bad, but it's not a political book. It's just focused on the attackers, and that's it. Understood. And I'm going to play a clip here. It's a bit of, it's about nine years ago, I think this was. Uh, sorry if it gets under people's skins, but this is how I'm sure some people have already reacted or will react if they haven't done so already. Just give me a moment, I'm bringing it up. Okay, if you don't hear the audio, let me know. They didn't know that. With all due respect, the fact is we had four dead Americans. Was it I because understand. of a protest or was it because of guys out for a walk one night who decided they'd go kill some Americans? What difference at this point does it make? It is our job to figure out what happened and do everything we can to prevent it from ever happening again, Senator. Now, honestly, I will do my best to answer your questions about this, but the, the fact is that people were trying in real time to get to the best information. The IC has a process, I understand, going with the other committees to explain how these talking points came out. But, you know, to be clear, it is from my perspective, less important today, looking backwards, as to why these militants decided they did it than to find them and bring them to justice. And then maybe we'll figure out what was going on in the meantime. If you heard that, um, that was almost 10 years ago. Was anything ever done? Did we find out whose people were? No, we did. We found out who they were. And actually, during during Hillary's time, we actually did detain a couple of the attackers. One was detained in Turkey and one was detained in Pakistan. And she never actually requested they be rendered to the U.S. Um, as secretary of state. So she did have an opportunity to bring some of the attackers to the U.S. during her tenure. And she didn't. So, yeah, we have identified over 100 of the attackers. Um, FBI has really never disclosed their investigation, but we're pretty sure from um, the information we've gotten on the ground, FBI hasn't talked to most of the sources we talked to, and they didn't believe FBI was ever going to talk to them. So we don't think FBI really has done any sort of an an effective investigation into the attacks. No, and um, there have been attackers who have been killed, um, but... When they've been killed, it wasn't because they're Benghazi attackers. And some of the time, uh, in some some of the instances, DOD didn't even know they were Benghazi attackers. Mm-hmm. They were attack, uh, or, um, they were targeted for another reason. So, no, justice hasn't been served. Yeah, so they were at the wrong place at the right time, basically. Basically, yeah. right. And some joined other groups, right? So they were targeting, let's say, an ISIS camp. And they killed Benghazi attackers because a lot of the attackers obviously went on, joined other groups. They committed other terrorist attacks. You know, it's funny when she says, oh, we don't want to allow them to keep doing it. The attackers have killed thousands of people, right, since the Benghazi attacks. In the last decade, they've killed thousands of people. Nobody's actually cared if they kept doing attacks, which which is kind of sad, right? They just let the terrorists go be terrorists so they could, um, you know, call it a protest and then never have to go after them. Yeah, and only because I tuned into a, a different podcast, I got some 
interesting tidbits about what you said. But for those that haven't heard those and hear this for the first time, you mentioned the FBI. Uh, for a lot of us here in the States, we believe the FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation, is relegated to just the United States. And if no. they're going to look – and that's just it. How did the FBI get involved and what were they supposed to originally do? Um, yeah, so when an American is actually killed overseas, it automatically becomes an FBI investigation. Um, I'm not a fan of this. FBI obviously wasn't even stationed in Libya at the time. They had no sources, n- no no ground experience at all in the country, like no official relationships. Um, this is probably something really broken in our government. Um, they do the same with hostages. When an American is taken hostage overseas, um, FBI becomes the primary. Um, you had something else you wanted to say? No, it actually should fall to the uh, Department of State Diplomatic Security Service, not the FBI. Yeah, that's why I found a little interesting. Like, oh, FBI got involved. Okay. Yeah, because uh, Sarah, you mentioned um, you arrived to Tripoli the day after, so September 13th, uh, yeah, 2012 the in local time. Um, so this was the day after the GRS uh, were flown out in a Libyan SC-130, not an American plane. But um, – that was for and you went there to to start looking into all right who were these guys that that came after americans huh? well actually i was in benghazi on, on 9-11 and i left town that day to go to a meeting in europe and then obviously i did my meeting and i had to come back to libya and there was no benghazi um, annex anymore so then i flew straight wow. into tripoli and i kept working until the end of november yeah, what, what a lot of people don't realize is that um sarah's always been part of the team um, she was actually there before we got there conducting operations. She was there with us and worked with us um, as part of the team. It's just that particular day. Thank goodness um, she had another meeting in another country, but she came back and then she continued to work those operations even after we were gone. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and I'm going to ask you a few questions about your experience there of uh, from your perspective, Sarah, about um, the whole terrorist attack. But uh, for my audience, uh, I mentioned that uh, there's whatever references um, I make here are available in the show notes of company's episode at www.thingsagoba.com, including this one. She tells her side of the story with with, uh, with Tonto on the Battle Line podcast. They even snipped out that 46 minutes because it was wow. It was it was like Tonto was here for the first time too. So watching his reaction was amazing too. To just hear details that. Uh, um, I, as someone from the outside looking in, had some idea, but hearing them verified by somebody that was uh, on the ground or had the intel is just even more square. But uh, with respects to when you left, I think you mentioned that uh, when you were, I think it was in Europe, that, that you called Boone. And Boone, was it, uh, you answered, you picked up the call. Was this uh, in between attacks or when? It, it was, yes. Yep, it was. But so you didn't tell... But you, but you didn't tell her. It's like, hey, we're under attack right now. I was like, you said, no, I'm busy. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the appropriate time. Things were still unfolding. Um, we we did attempt to, um, or we planned to contact her after things settled down to make sure she didn't come back to Benghazi. Um, but yeah, the, during the time, it just wasn't the right time to relay that. Yeah. So there's there's something that was mentioned. I think I read this in, in the book as well. Um, that the the staffers of at the annex uh, downplayed the situation was this before uh, the attacks or even in between attacks? because like oh see they only hit us that one time and it was like nothing no um we were actually hit six times but our team leader our team leader for grs who was a staffer downplayed significantly the events were going on why we're not sure um but yeah he, he definitely downplayed the events the entire night yeah, and once um, everyone left, like the um, the consulate compound, and came over the CIA annex, um, the officer at the consulate was doing a really good job of reporting out everything going on. The DS agent, but when they moved to the annex, the CIA was not good about reporting out the ongoing attacks. Um, they did a horrible job of sharing that with the community, and it led a lot of people to think the attacks were over. Yeah. And that's the thing that uh, the whole team that are thing, and I hope I'm not asking a question that you can't answer, uh, but as I was reading the books, I was like, wait, so there weren't six guys. There were seven. You mentioned it was a CIA staffer, but so that's why I was, I was a little perplexed there. So this team that are, who, who we don't know who it is, um, is, is GRS, but staffed by the CIA or is a CIA that, uh, that is the liaison for the GRS? 
No, so GRS is actually a unit within CIA. Okay. Okay, well, that, that makes a lot more sense. Uh, but uh, just to so we're not confused here, there's uh, the team leader, which is not portrayed anywhere in the film. And then there's uh, Bob, who is the station chief, obviously an alias, but uh, for this individual. So um, a lot of our, our target of ire for audience is towards this, this Bob character. But Sarah, you even mentioned that they made him look better in the movie than he really was. Uh, yeah, because when reading the book, I'm like, yeah, he's a little worse than uh, they're showing. But the but also the, the team leader was the one um, that was kind of downplaying a lot of what was going on. And that probably probably contributed to not uh, getting uh, support for you guys. You mentioned something, Sarah, that was mind-boggling to me because that's one detail I didn't know. I know that this this whole theme is of forgotten. Americans were forgotten out there. You guys had no support. But you guys were also led to believe that Feb 17 was going to come to your aid. And Sarah, you mentioned that they knew from the onset they weren't coming. Yeah, at least Bob did. We don't know for sure if he told their team lead, but Bob knew from his first phone call to the 17th February, they said, we're not sending you any reinforcements. Fortunately, um, within GRS, we, we think a little differently. We have a different mindset and we never trusted Feb 17 and we actually never wanted them to come. Um, we even mentioned several times to both Bob and to our team leader that, hey, they're probably involved and we don't want them to come, but we were still held up because of that reason. Yeah. And when he says they are involved, you know, now that we've done an investigation, we have numbers and we actually found over 30 of the terrorists at the consulate that night had been either a member of 17 February, the night of the attacks or in within the year prior to the attacks. Wow. Uh, now, Feb 17, there were the revolutionary militia that helped overthrow Gaddafi, was it? Yeah, I'll kind of let Sarah go into that. They were, but it's a little more complicated than that. A lot of it's some it. semantics. Like we call them revolutionaries. We call them a militia, but they were terrorists. I'll, I'll let Sarah get into more detail about that. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of militias set up um, during that time. Some were set up, you know, to honor different people in the past. Some were set up just by different terrorist groups that put together. Some were members, um, they're all in the same prison together and they created um, militias. So the militias were all over the board, right? You had far extreme Islamists, and then you had, hey, the guy who was your mechanic, and he's now running a militia. It really was across the board. When the revolution ended, though, the ones who kind of stayed in power were the ones who were the terrorists and the Islamists. The normal everyday guys were like, oh, I'm going to go join the government. I'm going to join the security services. I'm going to try to join the Libyan army. Right. So that was kind of the split. The Islamists and terrorists wanted, you know, a Sharia law. They wanted a very different Libya than actually the Libyan civilians fought for. Yeah. And I. Did that, in a way, lead to their own civil war? Because uh, ISIS is the one that ultimately took over, but ISIS is an offshoot of Al-Qaeda, as I understand it. Yeah, it's not exactly how it worked. Um, both ISIS and um, Al-Qaeda were actually aligned then. So this is the, the war kicked off in 2014, and the war was actually against General Khalifa Haftar. He ran the Libyan National Army. It's not the arm, Libya never created an army. They actually pay terrorists and militias to fight for them. So he's the opposition to the government of Libya. So he's the one that said, if I don't go into Benghazi and wipe these terrorists out, we're going to become a terrorist state. He went into Benghazi, started um, the second Libyan war, and he fought ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So at the time, the two groups fought together against Haftar. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's a... Uh... Something that I, I liked about the film, and this is what's important to, to note, is when you and the GRS team are going to the consulate and have to basically do street fighting to get to the consulate. It's like, who's who? No one's out here wearing uniforms. That's what I found absolutely terrifying. And anybody that knows anything about uh, what goes on in the Middle East is like, they're not meant to wear uniforms. That's the whole point. They blend in, disappear, use human shields or whatever. But it's like, what? And I think that's how you guys was like, how do we know as Feb 17? Well, even if they are, how do we know they're not going to shoot us in the back? You know, it's uh, these things that, that run through. Can, can, you, can you tell us? Because you said you have a different mindset. Can you explain your mindset, especially as you're on the street? That one mile is the most epic mile. It's like, I'm thinking the Mogadishu mile from the Black Hawk Down incident, but so like, this is a mile to get to the consulate. So like the danger was in every corner. What was the mindset then? Sure. For us, um, 
all of us are tactically mature. You know, we've come from careers within the military and in law enforcement. So um, we have a higher level of processing information, if you will. Um, we come from places to where everyone has a gun. Not everyone's a threat um, to where no one really wears a uniform. So that's normal. So what we're really looking for is temperament, intent, body language, um, aggressive actions. That's what we're looking for. Um, but it, it is chaotic because you don't know. Everybody looks the same. There's not a standard uniform um, like, like there would be with like a near peer um, army or something like that. So it is chaotic, but we're able to remain calm, process it in the information we see, and then look for that um, those target indicators, that body language, that temperament intent, those aggressive actions with those weapons. Because there were a lot of people there who had weapons who weren't terrorists, you know, who, who weren't um, aggressive at all. They, they were friendlies. And then there were others who weren't. It's like an open carry block party. Right. Because that, that's what it looked like. It's like, dude, how can you tell who's who? Um, it, yeah, th- I guess this kind of stems from a question that I, I asked Oz when, when I had him on. Because uh, I asked, like, because he wasn't um, at the annex when it all went down. He was uh, with, with a staffer out in the city. Then he had to come back. But a good thing, too, because he helped sec- at least to get the annex start getting secure because like, well, they're going to come for us next. The, But I'm without a doubt, he would have gone to uh, with you guys. But my, my thing is, why did you go, though? Knowing that it's just going to be maybe six of you, five of you, and a, and a translator to go. You, don't, you can't tell friend from foe. You know that you're going to, uh, in, into a war zone, basically. What was the impulse to keep you going to save people you don't know? Well, they're Americans. I mean, we, you know, we, we would do that anywhere, you know, for, for any American and then actually taking a step further, I mean, we would have done that for, for anyone, not just Americans, if they really needed that help. Um, but these were fellow Americans that um, we actually did have a relationship with. You know, we would eat dinner with them every Wednesday. Um, so we, we knew them. They were our colleagues. They were our friends. There was no way we weren't going to go. Yeah, and a lot of people don't know. I mean, he told you at the beginning when he gave you his bio, but, but Boone was diplomatic security you know, services, right? So he... that's like him as a junior officer, right? Like that was him 10 years prior over at the consulate. Like, you know, he would want someone to come save him in that situation or or at least back him up. You know, um, you know, they didn't know what they're getting to, of course, on the way over, but you know, that it's, it is the right thing to do, but that's how we treat, like he said, any, any allies overseas, if the French had the problem, if the Italians had the problems, if the Brits had the problems, Emiratis, et cetera, you know, the U S would try to do their best to support. And that, that's something that briefly touches in the book um, in the timeline. And I do think it's in 13 hours um, and under fire as well. But we did respond to the Brits as well uh, a month earlier, you know, when their convoy was hit with the RPG. Yeah, that, I do remember reading that. Yes. Um, read 13 hours, folks. Uh, it's, if you saw the movie, the book is even more dramatic. I'm like, wow, Michael Bay wasn't as dramatic as the book. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's some stuff there. Crazy. So it, when when I asked, I posed that question to Oz. You said the same thing you said and added to it. It's like, hey, look, if you see a, a, someone on the side of the road that needs help with a spare tire, um, you'll pull over and help. Um, yeah, except that uh, if you knew you did that, not only would you be fired, uh, you'll lose your entire livelihood because of it. It's, that's like the different scenario that it was for you guys. Because in the conversation I had with him, it was more like into the world of GRS, something that wasn't truly explored or understood. Because like mercenaries, just gun for hires. No, no, no. Private contractors not having uh, access to the same resources as a wounded warrior in public service would, uh, because he was uh, a wounded, which is why he started Shadow Warriors Project. But um, with uh, that mindset, it, it saddens me and how many, because uh, what, what I do in, in social media, also seeing and having to highlight and, po- and put out what's happening in our cities. Uh, someone needs help on the side of, on the side of the road and, and no one, no one comes by to help. What you're reflecting is it to me, I feel it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a dying virtue that it's like more people should, that I said, look at what happened. Cause you guys, you guys had a stand on order. Three guys went, broke cover. So, all right, we're going to tell our story because, yes, we were told to stand down because the government said, no, there was no stand down order. But in the footnote, we're going to say, yeah, but we did delay them. It's like, so how is that not a stand down order? Because that's that's the reason this whole thing is a political football. Because it's like, okay, so who gave the stand down order? Where did it stem from? Did it come all the way from the, from the State Department? Was it uh, the, the station chief? And that's what 
nobody wants to touch on, which is why I try to bury this story. And basically, uh, as soon as Oz, Tig, and, and Tonto came out, uh, basically character assassination against them because they broke cover. You know, it's it's crazy. And at the time, you said you were still working for the CIA. Right. So you, until relatively recently, uh, came out. But I, I never seen you on, on doing any press tours or anything of the sort, which is why when I saw the book cover, I was like, oh, snap. So he, he, he's out of the shadows. Um, of what, uh, Sarah, because I, I, I believe that you have the lion's share of the book, uh, as I am, I'm understanding it. And um, what prompted you to... Uh, uh, Bring Boone and Boone will prompt you be like, you know what, let me be a co-author on this to um to to tell the story or to tell the rest of the, the investigation. Yeah, I mean, we'd already been working together on Benghazi related content. Um, we weren't sure it was gonna be a book or not, but we actually started working on um a kind of our own investigation kind of before Trey Gowdy's committee, just because all the committees had done such a bad job. Um when we kind of diverted to the attackers we were both kind of on board immediately when we had the discussion like hey let's just make the focus going after the terrorists and we've been doing that together um since since 2015 you know when you go back to kind of talking about integrity and doing the right thing you know you, you get a lot of that in the cia and you have those type of people right like like we're the kind of people we're going to do the right thing we know it's going to work out for us you know it, it's it's just when you do the right thing um it just it, it only it only helps you. Right. We can go get jobs anywhere. We don't have to, like, you know, kiss someone's butt to keep a job somewhere or appease somebody. Right. Um, so so more people just need to kind of know their value. Right. Know, hey, they're lucky they have me working for them. Yeah. And, and honestly, Sarah, based on a lot of stuff I've even heard you speak, um, I must say, I, I never thought I I'd have to say this for someone from a three letter agency. But uh, the fact that you haven't given up on this and you're trying to make this public, well, you are making it public because uh, you published a book on it with, with Boone. I, I thank you for your service. I never thought I'd be saying that to someone from a three-letter agency because right now it's like th- th- there's there's a lot that are, are just disillusioned, disenchanted. It's like these, they're not getting anything done or they're targeting their um, their own people. It's like for real. And it, it's sad that uh, a lot of perceptions out there, but uh, you you giving me hope that there's you and I hope there's a lot more like you within the agency um, working because it's called a cold case investigation because 10 years later, we still haven't brought the perps to justice. And like you said, they're out there still killing people. And some of them could be Americans uh, and nothing is being done in the book. Uh, I think I heard you say in the, um, the, the shooting podcast, I, well, I have a full name here. That was a pretty long title. The Shooting Straight Radio podcast. I think you mentioned there's some pictures in this book. So you put the attackers' faces on the book? Oh, we have every attacker we highlight in the book, we include their photo. They had to have, we had to have their photo to include them in the book. That was one of the standards we set for ourselves. So to to talk about that a little more, um, there are more attackers. The ones that we found, we've actually proven our attackers. Um, by one, having a photo of them, two, um, putting them time and place predictable at the consulate and or the annex. There are a few that we couldn't get a photo of or we couldn't, um, um, without a doubt, positively place them at the annex and or the uh, consulate at the time. So we didn't include them in the book. So there are more, and that's why this is an active cold case investigation. Active. And you had mentioned also in that same podcast that uh, you did this unclassified. So in other words, this is accessible to the general public. Yes. Yeah. Well, we wanted it to be our information. We wanted we weren't confident the U.S. government would do something right. So if if another government reached out to us and said, hey, can you give me all your photos on bad guy X? We can just send all photos on bad guy X. They're completely unclassified. And that's we decided to do that from the beginning because you know, things get locked away in files. Nobody really knows what happens. And when it's a cold case, you know, this whole country should actually care about who these attackers are. And now because we did it this way, we can share it with them and they can actually understand like how terrorists work, who terrorists are, how their networks work, how historical their networks are. I think it's going to be a really good lesson um, to the American public just about how terrorism works how it's enduring, how, you know, people like Al-Qaeda aren't on the run. They're just patient. They're quiet. They, they're they good at going into hiding. I mean, they really do a good job of doing a lot of things with a hidden hand. 
and th- this really goes far beyond Benghazi. Um, for us, um, it, it, Benghazi's personal, but a lot of these attackers um, were involved in incidents before Benghazi, and they were involved in incidents after Benghazi um, on an international level. So this goes far beyond just Libya. I, I believe that. And I think your your book, I think, is, is timely, not just because it's the 10th. I still can't believe it's been 10 years. Right. I, I remember when I first started seeing the um, the wire because I follow the wire news. I don't just wait for it to become opinionated, digested news on the main talking heads and all that. So when I seeing that play out, it's like, oh, that's interesting. It's like, oh man, I can't wait for someone to say this is a YouTube video. So then I get that. Then they wait. So as soon as they started, like, nope, it's not that. But it wasn't until sometime later that we started getting more of the story from the guys that were on the ground. But um, I've, we're seeing the what's happening in our, in our country today where uh, just people that have a dissenting opinion are, are being called uh, domestic terrorists and uh, certain uh, factions of our government, are, it seems that they're being weaponized uh, against their own citizens. Uh, there's a lot of us that feel that way. And your book is timely because like, well, this is what terrorism looks like. And this, this is the face of evil of those that are actually committing evil. They're not saying things or using the wrong pronouns against people. They're actually causing physical harm and they do not discriminate by age or sex or any or any any of that and i think that uh, more needs to be known about this i don't have high hopes with uh, certain individuals uh, in power right now that will take this immediately seriously but the mere fact that it's being documented means it'll be hard to ignore because it needs people need to know history that once it's out there it's out there. You can erase the internet, but you got to collect all these books to burn them if you don't want anybody to know. So I think this is truly an, an important piece of history. I'm excited to get my book, which is why I said I ordered from two places because, like, who's going to get here first? I know I can get the ebook, but I prefer the physical, which is why I get these things. So I am lo- looking forward to that. But uh, there's a couple of other things that I want to hit on before, before we, um, we wrap. Um, I do want to make this- a point on oh, the yes, ebook. By all means. If you love the photos, you you want the ebook, right? Because you can zoom in. We have, <laughs> gosh, well over two hundred photos inside the oh, book. Wow. So it is kind of fun to zoom in. We put some funny ones in for people who can zoom in. Um, we have like a very famous terrorist picking his nose. So we put some cute little things in there if you actually zoom in. But regardless, it's a great book, you know, in either format. You heard it here, folks. Uh, Sarah made a picture book for adults. <laughs> so, yes, remember, my like co-author's a marine. I, I'm doing my best here, <laughs> right? Oh, but, um, there's something to, to to tie it in with respects to. It's, it's kind of reading between the lines. I read between the lines when I read about it when it happened. I'm like, how ironic is that? That the uh, the militia, if you will, that got the the team out of the annex. And out of Libya were the so-called enemy. It was Gaddafi's loyalists. Am I right in that? 100%. And we didn't even know they existed. <laughs> really? So when you saw a convoy of God knows how many vehicles with uh, and tactical and on all that, it's like, oh, snap, who's this? Yeah, we had were- zero relationship with them. They were an underground intelligence unit of Gaddafi loyalists. So they were basically in hiding in Benghazi, like, collecting info on terrorists and doing those type of things. Okay. And they, they deserve a lot of credit too, um, because it's just like us helping our fellow Americans. Now here we have Gaddafi loyalists who we helped overthrow and now, you know, risking their own lives. They came to help us. And risking their lives after, right? Because people then knew they came and saved us and now they're stuck in that city and all the terrorists know, Hey, these are who actually helped the, te- the Americans get out of the compound. He smokes. Um, I didn't know that part that you guys didn't know they existed until that very moment. So that's new to me. Um, wow. So hold on. I'm, tr- I'm still processing that. It's that that's crazy. So how did you guys know they were friends? In the film, they of course they had to build a drama. It's like, oh, are they with us or are they against us? And then oh, the jumble. Like, oh yeah, they're with us. Uh, Tonto said, no, I didn't cry. But <laughs> the, for the film, you know, it, it hits home because you you I, you get to feel what the relief that I'm sure certain uh, of you felt, but you were still on the roof, uh, if I believe, when the motors fell. Yes, that's correct. Yes. Um, we, we actually had a CT officer who 
made a phone call to a contact who had a relative who actually um, was with this this underground unit who actually brought them to our aid. And when, when they did show up, there there was a lot of apprehension because we didn't know who they were. Um, we weren't sure if they were friend or fro- foe. Um, Tonto did use the Jombo to kind of figure out, hey, are these guys going to fire on us or are they not? But at that point, like we were prepared to go to ground. You know, we were compared. We were prepared to, if need be, if that large force actually hit us, we knew that was only a matter of time before they would overrun the compound, and then we'd have to go buck Wazulu in the streets. Crazy, because uh, uh, um, when uh, Glenn Doherty's uh, team arrived, I think it was just a, a handful of guys, like two Delta Force, and um, I forget who else. But um, he was the only one that went up on the roof. So uh, unfortunately, he and Glenn are the ones that are not with us anymore but man uh, their legends live on honestly so i even then how many guns would that have meant were on, on for the americans because there was the ds guys uh, or the d boys they're also called so there were them but they didn't have the experience that you guys had so obviously the um the more the more per, uh, experienced ones if you will were about eight of you with uh when with glenn and uh maybe a couple of delta force so we won't say how many showed up but it wasn't a lot so um our counterparts our grs counterparts from tripoli showed up um the two delta force guys that showed up were not sent by dod they were just guys who'd work out with the other grs guys in tripoli in the gym you know they recognized each other hey you're a shooter we're a shooter you know, you got that whole bromance thing going on. And when they found out there was a fight in Tripler, they're like, hey, we're going too. But that was never a DOD response. Those dudes just chose to come. Okay. Because I couldn't have filmed their portrait that they were tasked with document destruction. Not at all. No. No. <laughs> no. Wow. Document okay. destruction. I, I can promise you when FBI went back there, not much was destructed. <laughs> <laughs> right. <No. laughs> they're just other Americans helping other Americans. That's it. On their own. On their own, awesome. Yeah, then that that's actually good to know because uh, that's something that's also didn't know. Um, now, with the uh, uh, one last question with regarding to uh, the book. So, uh, Sarah, this is not uh, a retelling of events from your perspective uh, and and Boone's, but um, adding more like who these guys are. Like, where's Waldo? Kind of scenario, right? Yeah. So basically, what we do is in the middle of the book, we walk through all the attackers. So we start with the mastermind level. Um, and then obviously, like, you know, Al-Qaeda senior leadership, right, because they directed it. Then we go into a chapter that's kind of all the leadership of the different groups and the senior operational commanders on the ground. And then we move into a chapter that's every grunt guy attacker. And you'll just see all them um, one by one by one through the book. And there's 99 in just the grunt section. And then there's maybe about 20 in the leadership sections. Wow. All right. um, well, the book is out. It's available on Amazon. Uh, you can buy it on Kindle there. Hold off on the hardcover until more information is available. But Barnes & Noble has it both on ebook and hardcover. That's uh, Benghazi Know Thy Enemy uh, Cold Case Investigation. Yes, I printed out the cover. <laughs> um, but before uh, before signing off, uh, and don't hang up because once we, we end recording, I have something for you guys. But uh, Boom is, you, you can plug in some of the stuff that you're doing because uh, you're plugging in your book. But uh, I noticed uh, it's called threat management solutions. Is it like a instructor's school for armed civilians or what is that? So, um, yeah, I run a training company called threat, threat management solutions, which you can find on shootingclasses.com. Um, and it's just general firearms instruction for everybody. We train a lot of law enforcement um, and government entities, but we also train the legally armed citizens as well. And it's everything from medical active shooter response or just CCW. Okay. And, and it's uh, like a, uh, video stuff or, or like written content for people to digest or just physical classes? No, this is hands-on physical classes in person. Yes, sir. Okay. But I think you're on the East Coast because I'm over here on the West Coast, right? Because we're on a different time difference here. How's that work? The free state of Florida. The free state of Florida, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, um, a lot of these TikTok videos of teachers are messing with kids that are coming from Florida, not from California. So we, we guys got to look into that. Too much freedom, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but still, got to protect our young. So um, that's where we'll leave it. Sarah, you're welcome to plug anything else that you might have going on. Um, I, I Seriously, I thank you both uh, for your service to our country. Uh, but uh, Sarah, I'll, I'll leave you both with the last word. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, the thing we really want the public to help us with is the fact that the FBI and then the rest of the government have gotten away with not going after the attackers because the public has fallen into the politics of it, right? They joined, hey, we're on the Democrat side, we're on the Republican side of this. We really need the population of the United States to say, hey, we care about the attackers. Like, why are they not brought to justice? You know, it's been 10 years. I don't want to hear about Hillary Clinton anymore. I want you to tell me why Ziad Balam one of the attackers is not on FBI's most wanted list. Like, why aren't they on State Department's rewards for justice? He killed an ambassador. Like, that stuff should blow people's minds. They covered it up that much that even the State Department doesn't have these people listed as wanted. And so we want people to go out to their representatives once they learn who the attackers are, because when they learn the attackers, they're going to be like, holy, like, these are badass, you know, mofos. Like, we do not want them coming to the U.S. Because remember, these people aren't watch listed. They can basically get a visa and come straight to the United States and no one's going to do anything about them. So we really want the public to support us in telling the government this matters to us. Absolutely. And then, you know, not to give anything away, you know, because I want you to go buy the book. Um, but Abu Katala is not the mastermind. He wasn't even an attacker. He was a looter. So, yeah. So just for people's background, you know, there was a terrorist arrested by the FBI um, and they told the whole United States he was the mastermind of the U.S. consulate attack. And he's in prison right now. I believe he got a 22 year prison sentence. And they're actually about to basically bring him back into court to give him a longer sentence to kind of keep this lie going that he's the mastermind. But he wasn't the mastermind. He showed up to the attacks late. And then he actually waited for Al Qaeda to leave the consulate compound before he even went in. And then he looted. So that's who the FBI told you was the mastermind. So they didn't have to be honest and tell you it was a senior leader in Al Qaeda. And that should make everybody pretty worried. That's awful. And I'm glad that that uh, you mentioned it. this isn't political. Uh, and yeah, I have my politics. I, I wear them on my sleeve, but I try to keep leave this out of it because it's not it's not about that. It's about uh, justice. And one of the main concerns that we have in this country is an open borders policy. As you said, they're not on any watch list, and they could maybe they have walked in, and we wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. And besides. Excuse me. This is nothing new because it has happened before in the past 20 years where terrorists were apprehended at the border disguised as Mexicans. Like, that's how easy it is. So it is a concern, especially when we had about 2 million people that's already crossed in the past 18 months or so through the border. It's like, what if? What if? That's why I said this book is timely. People need to wake up. They need to know about this. And whatever shenanigans Amazon is doing, I hope people don't get dissuaded. Barnes & Noble is available. Besides, some of you have issue against Amazon anyway because they're part of big tech. So there's Barnes & Noble. There's no excuse not to get the book. Boone, Sarah, thank you so much. Don't hang up, but thank you so much for joining me on the thank program. Uh, is there anywhere where people can can follow you guys? I, Boone, I, I have your Instagram, so I will be uh, adding that to the show notes. But Sarah, is there any social media you'd like to plug in or – Nothing yeah, I mean, we're most basically doing the updates on the book um, on Instagram on a page called at Ascari Media Group. That's A-S-K-A-R-I. Um, and then, of course, he's DB underscore Boone, you know, on um, Instagram. I mean, those are the key places to get them. Yeah, as you quickly noted, Amazon's been doing some price gouging on our book. We think it's to tank it in the rankings. I think they're just trying to sell it for $42. Do not buy our book for anything over $27.99. That's the retail. You can get it in Barnes and Noble. You can go into any local bookstore, hopefully in your hometown, ask them to order it. You can go on IndieBound and get it sent to um, bookstores in your local town. So, you know, support local. We're coming up to the holiday season anyway. And local businesses have had a rough couple of years. Amen. So we do that anyway. Sarah, seriously, you made a big fan out of me. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, definitely support local folks. And that's where we'll leave it. Uh, the Instagrams will be in the show notes. Come this episode at www.thesugover.com. Once again, thank you so very much. And this is where we'll leave it, folks. We'll see you, or I'll see you on the next one.